Welcome to The Brain Trust, a physician's guide to diagnosing Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, brought to you from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians. I'm Dr. Kate Rowland, family physician, member of the IAFP, and faculty at Rush University. Funding for this podcast series was provided by a grant from the Illinois Department of Public Health. The goal of The Brain Trust and this podcast series is to educate and empower the primary care clinician in the early detection, diagnosis, and management of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. Clinical resources, free CME, and other educational materials are available online at thebraintrustproject.com. CME credit is available for each podcast. The Illinois Academy of Family Physicians is accredited by the Accreditation Council of Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Information on how to receive credit can be found on the Brain Trust Project website. Thank you for joining us as we empower each other and provide training on the early detection of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. And now, today's episode. Welcome today to our next podcast in the series called The Brain Trust about early detection of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Today, we're going to be talking about the early detection in the Latino community. And I'm going to be your moderator. I'm Dr. Raj Shah, and I'm a professor in the Department of Family and Preventive Medicine and the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center. And the great news about today's presentation is I don't have to travel many miles in my car. I actually got to just walk from my uh, offices at uh, Rush University Medical Center back to where I graduated from medical school at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And I'm going to be meeting with Dr. Evelyn Figueroa, a good friend and colleague for many years. She's the professor of clinical family and community medicine at the University of Illinois at Chicago College of Medicine. Evelyn, thank you for having me here today. It's really great to see you. Hi, Raj. Good afternoon. I'm glad we have a chance to meet and catch up on all the wonderful things you've been doing to support the Latino community over your entire career and especially around the area of working with older adults. But before I get into that, just for our audience, can you tell us a little bit about you and kind of your role at UIC and a little bit about the population you serve as in your practice at UIC? So like you, I'm a graduate of the University of Illinois at Chicago, class of 99. And while I was a medical student at UIC, I was very involved in the Latino Medical Student Association called La Rama back then. The president, while I was an M2, did a lot of community-centered work in the Pilsen neighborhood, left UIC, and during residency had a very large Spanish-speaking practice at Lutheran General. I was the only Spanish speaker in the whole residency program. After that, took a job at a county hospital in Northern California. Again, lots of work with immigrants, especially Latinx immigrants, and expanded my scope into more reproductive and maternity care which is what I spent a long time in my career doing. But I, returning back to UIC in 2005 and getting to build the residency, build my practice there, um, I realized that as much as I loved clinical care, I also loved the intersection of social determinants of health with clinical, with clinical practice. And through continued intentional work with the Pilsen community, eventually started a 501c3, the Figueroa Family Foundation, uh, which started in late 2017. And through the Figueroa Family Foundation, we we formed a number of anti-poverty projects, including our largest one, the Pilsen Food Pantry that services about 50-50 Latinx and Chinese clients, because those are the two biggest communities that are right in the neighborhood where we operate. I really loved doing my community-facing work because it 
you know, I use the word intersection and it's because it really is. If you are not addressing social determinants like language barriers, immigration status, financial status, et cetera, it's very, very hard to take good medical care of folks. So building this community-centered organization has really helped me feel like a better family physician. Yeah, no, that's been amazing to see that trajectory of your growth and all the hard, you know, important work you've been doing in the communities at multiple levels. And I, I really appreciate you bringing up the concepts of what we're facing in many of our communities in urban areas and even in rural areas, especially mm-hmm. with Latinos. And that's the idea around the structural determinants and social determinants of health. And then it kind of brings me to, you know, as you think about your care and your patients that are older, that might be at risk for dementia, and you're evaluating them in sort of the family structure uh, mm-hmm. and community structure. What are some of those barriers, you know, or those social determinants barriers you're sort of dealing with in trying to make an early diagnosis of dementia? There are so many, of course. You had mentioned um, structural and social And also for folks that are um, immigrants, which many Latinx folks are, there are also political determinants of health that people have to face on a daily basis. The social determinants that I really experience the most regarding our Latinx community has to do with literacy, language proficiency, and financial status. All of these things really do control the resources and a person's ability to navigate through available resources. Chicago is a great can be a very great city for social services if you know how to navigate them. But the devil is in the details. And that's the work that I do is not only myself directly navigating patients, but also working with our staff to empower our clients, working with my advocacy students on my rotation and also with the core family medicine clerks. And I guess I'd be curious, like, how do you go about in the residency program as you're seeing older patients maybe at risk for developing a dementia? And thinking through how do you, you know, maybe screen or evaluate if there's cognitive issues that are going on. Sometimes we know our like screening tools may not be perfect because either we don't have them translated or, you know, with literacy and education levels, they might not work as well. But is there a kind of a process you try to instill or do as you're seeing persons like maybe with the annual wellness visit to try to engage them? I've certainly learned the hard way, I have to say. I wish I could say that I have done it right or a writer way from the beginning. But the first time I actually realized a patient of mine was illiterate, a patient who did later develop um, Alzheimer's dementia or maybe already had dementia at the time was with a resident of mine who actually, I precept the residents every Thursday. That's my standing clinic. And one of my personal panel went in through the residence clinic because I wasn't accessible. And that resident very quickly realized my patient couldn't read. And this was a patient who had been my patient for several years. And I was very humbled by the fact that a resident could see them for one time. And she basically figured it out because the patient, she asked the patient what she did for fun. And the patient talked about watching TV. And then she screened more saying, what about reading books or doing crossword puzzles or something like that. And the patient, you know, just looked away. And then she said, do you have any trouble reading and uncovered it very quickly. And the, you know, the research is really clear about Latinx folks. Um, Latinx immigrants have lower literacy level than the greater general cohort. So the average Latinx immigrant has a fourth grade education, which also lends to not only just regular literacy, but language fluency, numeral literacy, financial literacy, and then their ability to learn another language 
and adapt in. Chicago is a city like like it is for people that speak Polish, for people that speak Cantonese. It is a city where you can hide and never have to learn English. But there are also some pretty severe structural barriers that preclude those folks from learning these additional languages. And then that means that there are delays and even, you know, the communication may not be as sophisticated. And then the families and the clinicians may not even use such advanced vocabulary to start noticing some of those gaps. What I changed after what happened with that resident and uh, and just really being surprised to not know that about my patient, who again, had been my patient for several years, is just to start really being firm with my, um, not firm, but setting expectations to bring medications to every clinic for all of my patients. That was a really easy way. And having the patient tell me what they were using them for and if they were describing pills and not telling me names that made me more curious i also got a lot better at just trying to destigmatize asking about literacy you know if someone grows up in poverty and doesn't have the same access to education although we individualize that blame it really isn't their fault it's a system that has been designed to work that way so if i don't validate the shame that the patient expresses when they say they can't read instead saying well you were working for your family or your parents were you were orphaned you you needed to step in and help it really helps i found that it's it's a very disarming type of segue to make with them and then to help them understand that i just i'm not there to out or embarrass them that we just need to have a frank discussion and and that i want to make sure that the discharge papers make sense and i want to make sure that their medications are really lined up properly so that was a really great thing that the resident did for me and helped me. So in clinic, I have my folks bring it. I also, if someone isn't answering questions and the family member, member continues to answer questions from them, of course, you know, I'm sure you do the same thing. You start redirecting and saying, you know, in a nice way, but saying, I, I want to hear what they have to say about it. Even if they take longer, I want to hear that. Yeah. And I, I think you bring up a good point about, you know, creating a safe environment, right? Because mm -hmm. even when people are concerned about their memory, they don't always like to talk about it because mm -hmm. they're worried that people are going to take advantage of them, going to look less of them. And so I really do like that idea of what you were saying to create sort of a, a safe zone that, you know, we're going to talk about this, it's common. And, you know, in some ways we know in the Latino community, the risks are a little bit higher for developing mm -hmm. Alzheimer's disease than in the general white population in the United States. So, yeah, it's really key to create that environment. Now, many of our listeners also may not be in environments where they're seeing more they're seeing more Latino patients, older patients coming in maybe with their families, right, for care in primary care. But they they may not have bilingual staff in the office just where they're located. And what are some of your suggestions maybe in trying to work through not only the literacy piece but the language piece so that we don't get overly dependent, say, on a family member, especially a teenager who's the, you know, the right. one who's translating in English, because an older adult may not say something to that teenager, the teenager may not ask, especially when it comes about memory. Yeah. I think one thing that's really important for is for us to actually understand the resources that are available at our, our health institutions. Oftentimes, translation services are available. It's just that folks view it to be quicker and more convenient to use family members or they assume their Spanish is adequate enough to get by. I used to teach medical Spanish to my co-residents in residency and then in the residency for a while. And I made sure that they understood what I was teaching them was yes, no Spanish. This was not, 
this was not Spanish that would substitute for having an interpreter. It would buy you time until the interpreter was present. So I found that that's a, a definitely a very big issue. And, and also reassuring the families that it's okay that they not interpret. We, um, but Latino culture by just by tradition is very close knit. Folks are um, very protective. It's very hierarchical. There's a lot of respect and explaining to them that I'm just trying to give grandma or grandpa his privacy and that it's really okay that you don't do this part of it. We can go over the discharge summary today together, but you know, I need you to understand that part. But for the history, it's totally normal. We ask for interpreters all the time. I think that really destigmatizes bringing interpreters in. There are even now free apps for interpretation. And I'm not meaning Google Translate. I'm meaning live interpreters that you can get free of charge. We use them at the shelters right now. So it's uh, translation services are, are quite accessible. And when we switched, when Mercy uh, shut down for the time that they had shut down before they um, pivoted into their new health organization, we had a huge influx of Cantonese-speaking patients when our proficiency at UIC was really Mandarin. And what happened was that the physicians gave feedback to translation services at the hospital, and not surprisingly, they added on Cantonese interpreters. So often, health systems will respond positively if they understand that what the you know what the data is showing and and what the what the needs are. So it's really also a matter of us being proactive and sharing back with our administration that these are important pieces of clinical care and that they need to be available. Yeah, that's definitely a nice example of, you, you know, a barrier, a structural barrier dealing with language access and us being able to, you know, actually have some agency and to solve it by asking for the interpreter, not depending on the family or trying to get by with limited, you know, Spanish speaking skills in an important area. But that brings me to the other kind of barrier we were talking about a little while ago, which was sort of sometimes around insurance, right? Insurance mm -hmm. coverage. Well, before I get to insurance, one of the problems can be on the literacy side is the scales that we create to do the screening, right? Like mm -hmm. whether it be the mm -hmm. mini mental state exam or mm -hmm. the OCA exam. I mean, there there are Spanish versions of it, but if somebody has a lower literacy on that, mm -hmm. you get a score that's low, but it might not represent that they have dementia. Right. So how, how have you kind of dealt with that or, you know, not dependent so much on the actual number from the tool, but like using your sort of spidey sense skills as yeah. a family physician to kind of say, wait, wait a minute, something's just not matching up here, right? And how do I deal with that? Right. You know, I'm fortunate because I have, um, I grew up with a grandmother that had to drop out of school in third grade. She was orphaned. So she had a third grade reading, uh, she had a third grade education in a rural, you know, country school in Puerto Rico. So that would have been cohort class, you know, classes with lots of different ages. And I helped my grandma complete these books to get an eighth grade graduation certificate. And I taught her to write numbers, to write her own checks. And so there was a lot of firsthand knowledge that I had about how inaccessible that is. And so it really has motivated me because I see my grandma when I see a lot of these folks. She actually developed some senile dementia in her 90s, but it was pretty sharp as a tack for a long, long time because you have to compensate, right? If you can't read, you have to be able to memorize a lot. And that part that you mentioned before about people being don't, not wanting folks to know that they can't read or they are having some memory issues is significant because of that opportunity that people, other people can, can use to take advantage of them. And a lot of the just financial ramifications of not being literate. So in clinic, I think, I think a lot about this, a lot about 
what I needed to do, you know, as a child to to let my grandma feel okay with me helping her her learn. And in clinic, you definitely use your intuition with patients and you work on just like you would with someone who, you know, who has low back pain, you work on function and trying to talk to them about how they're functioning, their ADLs, their um their relationship with their family members. Is their weight stable? What their what's their sleep cycle like? There are lots of other measurements that you can use because the goals are all the same. The goals are to help this person continue to live up to their fullest potential. And when you have concerns for any form of dementia, including Alzheimer's, you know, Alzheimer's has, you know, specific medications that we try to do to just like stay the progression of the disease. So that's what I've used the most in clinic is really knowing what hobbies my patient has, what they do to keep themselves occupied all day, and then really trying to assess what's happening. Because I've had just so many patients that it's Alzheimer's plus vascular dementia. It's Alzheimer's plus Nash cirrhosis with hepatic encephalopathy. It's, you know, it's so intersectional that it's, um, I, I wish it was just one form of no, dementia. Yeah, you're right. It's always the mix of a lot of things. But I really, I'm glad. And you brought up the idea of one of your best tools in your pocket is to ask people about their function. What are they doing socially? What are they doing occupationally? What are they doing in their day-to-day lives? And especially if there's a change, right, from where they were Mm -hmm. before, that might give you the clue, right, that something is different, that we have to look at this and it Mm -hmm. could be their cognition. So I'm really glad you brought that up. And then if we can come back to that other part about the insurance status, right, because there's sometimes this feeling like, I'm in primary care, I've got to get a neuropsych test because I'm not sure or have them seen by a neuropsychologist, or I've got to get an imaging study on them to really show if this is a dementia. How how do you deal with that when individuals that you serve in your communities and the Latino community and the Cantonese community, where you you deal with these barriers around insurance for some of these high-end technological ways of diagnosing dementia? Yeah. And most of the time, my concerns about it have to do with co-pays and really understanding the extent of the testing, what it's going to ensue. You know, neuropsych testing can take six hours. It's very difficult to complete. And if someone doesn't have the mental stamina to get through that, that they need to take several naps a day, it's not even worth sending them uh, to do it because they're not going to make it through and it's going to be a very um, shaming event. So most of the insurance barriers that that I get just have to do with the copay. You know, now in Illinois, regardless of immigration status, if you have six months residency, you can be insured on Medicaid after 42 years of age. It is income-based, but a lot of these, the aging population that is no longer working, they're able to get insured. So it's it's been a nice change for the last couple of years that it hasn't been so much of a barrier, but really making sure that you're sending the right patient for a test that they're going to be able to complete is is more of my um, challenge. It's a great point. And, you know, again, using the skills you do have and the environments you do have to make a working diagnosis and then to kind of follow somebody over mm-hmm. time. That's the beauty of family medicine is you can follow people over time and see how they're doing and if there's changes that have to happen. And then, yeah, I was just kind of curious as we're coming to a a near end with our conversation, any thoughts about like a positive experience you've had in sort of the early detection, its impact on not only that person or maybe their extended family, like they were seeing concerns about memory or you picked up some concerns about memory and then kind of, you know, help make a diagnosis and then help support that family through that journey. Yeah, we have, um, I have a really great sister act in my practice where there's the younger sister who's 70, and the older sister who's 83, and the the youngest um, that's 70, 
never had children or got um, or or coupled. So the family has uh, she's one. They're one of I believe nine children. It's a very large family. Um, so the seventy year old has really been entrusted with the care of this eighty three year old and, and pretty burdened to be honest. And um and so it's a very difficult situation. And but they uh, they moved from Mexico not very long ago because they needed to be closer to the family so that they would at least get some financial support and et cetera. And I was able, what's been really nice about it is just really focusing the treatment on her symptoms. So the sister wasn't sleeping at night. That was causing a lot of trouble. So just, you know, using very low dose risperidone that did wonders for this person. And then um, setting up some services through the Pilsen Food Pantry. So they get a, they get, they get food delivered every two weeks. They have befriended the driver, the driver, they call him for everything. He's a really great guy. So then he'll send me messages from them because they have trouble getting through the central call center for UI Health. So they'll send me a message and say, you know, needs help with glasses. And I'll say, okay. And then I'll get my advocacy student on it because usually I have an advocacy student who's Spanish speaking. So our staff has gotten better with support services for folks like them. And we really have, yeah. And we have a physical therapy program at the pantry. And it wasn't that they would have not been able to go to another physical therapy place, but it was close and convenient and they knew how to get there. Um, and we could get a ride from our our person. And those were those were really important things to do for them. So that's a family I feel really, really good about because that yeah. that sister had really been having a lot of trouble, a lot of agitation issues. She once ate rat poison that she oh. thought was candy because she was awake at night. There were there were all sorts of things that we were able to get very much under control because I had additional resources and I think they just felt like they were heard. Yeah. And I, it's, it's really an impressive story about that engagement with the community and almost creating a network of people that are what we call dementia friends, yeah. which is sort of the terminology that they also can recognize individuals that might be having troubles, help them out, reduce some of the stigmas and barriers and make a difference in sort of a community approach. So it's really a great story that thank you for sharing that. And in the final moments we have, any kind of uh, recommendations or final comments you want to make about how we best work all over Illinois with primary care physicians to help with early diagnosis of dementia in Latino populations? Yeah, I have a couple suggestions. I think the first thing is to understand what the what your center or your department of aging for your county or your city offers for folks. Um, families really don't know this. Chicago is a great city, of course, for center of aging. But yesterday I looked up something for Will County because I had someone who's caring for a family member with dementia and they were paying, they're paying an agency $30 an hour to help. Oh. And that is just not sustainable. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and they said, we just have to, I'm, I'm completely tapped out. And I said, wait, 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 like, and, and I was taking care of the caregiver, not of the parent. Mm-hmm. And um, But I said, this part is so important. So all of us um, that are clinicians, we have to learn what those resources are in our specific communities. You can find that on findhelp.com. You can call 211. There are lots of different ways that you can find what's available. And you can do it through the Alzheimer's Foundation. But Understanding what respite care is available, what homemaker services are available is really important for keeping seniors or other folks with Alzheimer's that want to stay in their home because that really helps orient and anchor them. Yeah, no, that's terrific suggestions. And I'm glad you brought up even the 211 number as a new resource that's been developed around social services that we should all Mm -hmm. get comfortable with. 
But I really appreciate all the information you provided us today in our Brain Trust podcast, uh, Evelyn. And I'm continuing to be amazed at all the work you've been doing and advancing in your career and supporting the next generation of individuals. So thank you again. And thanks to our listeners for spending some time with us in the Brain Trust podcast. We look forward to seeing you another day. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Thank you to our expert faculty and to you, our listeners, for tuning into this episode. If you have any comments, questions, or ideas for future topics, please contact us at podcast at thebraintrust.com. For more episodes of The Brain Trust, please visit our website, thebraintrustproject.com. You'll find transcripts, speaker disclosures, instructions to claim CME credit, and other Alzheimer's resources as well. Subscribe to this podcast series on Healthcare Now Radio, Spotify, Apple, Google Play, or any major podcast platform. Thank you again, and we hope you tune into the next episode of The Brain Trust.